Welcome to According to Christ Podcast with Drew Mary and Dale Stenberg, a weekly podcast that seeks to glorify God and edify the church through Christ-centered and exegetical discussions from a Reformed perspective. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to another episode of According to Christ Podcast. I'm Dale Stenberg. And I'm Drew Mary. And we have a very special guest uh, tonight. We're going to be speaking with Sean Cole. Uh, Sean is lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. The church is an SBC church that's aligned with the Founders Ministry. So they likewise hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Sean is also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University, and he has a podcast called Understanding Christianity, which we'll link to on the show notes page. Sean, thanks so much for being here. I'm so thankful you guys have asked me to be a part of this, and I look forward to um, being helpful and being edifying to God's people. Amen. Well, we brought Sean on because of his unique and uh, uh, deep understanding of some of the inner workings of traditionalism which is a system of theology that's gained popularity throughout the SBC. And we want to talk with Sean about some of the deficiencies of this theological system um, in contrast to a more reformed understanding of at least the soteriological points uh, that we may differentiate from them. So we, we are looking for clarification from Sean. We're looking to interact with some of the things that are going on inside of the SBC right now and really just praying for a clear and, and concise understanding of, the, of some of the primary issues. So with that in mind, Sean, why don't we jump right in and before we get too deep in the conversation, help us orient ourselves around what is traditionalism? And um, I and I know that <laughs> it's kind of a big question. So perhaps you can give us a one to two minute a kind of summary of the core basic uh, pillars of their doctrine, and then we'll we'll go from there. It's probably helpful to talk about the 2012 document that Dr. Eric Hankins uh, put out called the Statement on Traditional Soteriology that has over a thousand signatures and basically what they would say is that they are in the Mullins, Hobbes, Rogers tradition and and if you know the names of those three men it goes back to E.Y. Mullins who was uh, president of Southern Seminary in the 20s, 30s, 40s, Um, Herschel Hobbes who was a big name Southern Baptist in the 60s and 70s and then of course Adrian Rogers um, who was the champion of the conservative resurgence and so what they would say is this is the theological stream that goes back really about 50, 60 years in Southern Baptist life and what they would argue is it represents the mainstream or the majority view of what Southern Baptists have held to um, within about the past 60, 70 years. They would not identify themselves as Arminian. They don't like the title non-Calvinist. And so unfortunately, um, for lack of a better title, they've called themselves traditionalists, which I'm not sure is that appealing to millennials and a younger generation. But that's basically um, how that term traditionalism has, has been coined pretty much since 2012. Okay, well, Sean, why don't you lay out for us, uh, with that being being said, um, some of the main tenets of traditional soteriology? Like, what 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 exactly? You know, you mentioned the traditional statement. 
Um, and if I remember correctly, there's 10 articles. You know, you don't need to go through all of those articles, but maybe summarize for us what are the main contentions in that in that article that differ from you know our more reformed right. perspective. Right. I can boil it down. There's a lot of places we can go, but I'm going to boil it down to two major points of contention. And the first one is the big one. Um, they deny what we as Reformed theologians would hold to as total inability. Um, they would give lip service to total depravity, but they deny imputed guilt from Adam that renders sinners morally and spiritually incapable of responding positively to God's appeal to be saved. And so their denial of total inability basically piggybacks on other doctrines as far as how you understand regeneration, how you understand effectual calling, since those doctrines are linked together. So that's that's a big one, a denial of total inability. The other big issue is their understanding of election. It's not monolithic within traditionalism. Uh, some hold to the, the typical Arminian foreseen faith view, but the majority of them hold to um, corporate election, which is really a misunderstanding of Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. And so it's a denial. If you could, if you could sum it down to a denial of unconditional election and a denial of total inability, those are the two big issues that traditionalism hangs its hat on. Okay, so if they, of course, I think some of the natural questions that pop up in the minds of the Reformed think, thinking people is, well, if they deny total inability, well, what in the world do they believe? <laughs> so how would they replace that, or right. how would they nuance it? Right. They would say that we are sinners, but that we still have the inherent ability to respond to the gospel. And so they, here's the thing, Arminians believe in total depravity and total inability in the sense of spiritual deadness. So Arminians and Calvinists are both starting at the same vantage point. We start with total inability. The Arminian answer in overcoming total inability is their understanding of prevenient grace, which is a Holy Spirit um, assisting grace that really puts a person back into a position where Adam was pre-fall. It's, it's kind of, it gets you over the hump, um, it gets you over that total inability, but you can still cooperate with that grace. But they still see a need for some type of prevenient grace. Of course, we as Calvinists, our answer to that is sovereign regeneration, that God grants the regenerating faith in order to believe in the gospel so that we can be saved. A traditionalist comes along and says, Arminians, Calvinists, you're both wrong. You're, you're both starting from the wrong starting place. We deny spiritual deadness. We deny total inability. We have the capacity to respond simply to the gospel appeal. And so in their view, the gospel itself, the bare gospel, without any type of Holy Spirit regeneration, the gospel appeal in and of itself is capable of of allowing any sinner to respond positively to God's appeal to be saved. Right, and and I think, uh, you know, a big proponent of this is, of course, uh, Leighton Flowers. Um, he is actually probably maybe the most outspoken traditionalist, um, you know, through his uh, blog, uh, Soteriology 101, and his podcast. And, uh, you know, you and I both have interacted with him in the past, especially you. You've actually debated him, you know, formally speaking. Um and you know he he's used the 
uh, analogy or illustration before of kind of a, an infomercial. You know, if people can, you know, hear an infomercial and act on, on it on it or believe it, then why can't we hear the gospel and act on it or believe it? Which to me, again, just goes exactly to what you were talking about, how really they have, I think, a a deficient view of the biblical teaching regarding um, the sinful state of man. Uh, for instance, in their article two, the sinfulness of man in the traditional statement, in the denial they say, um, we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. And so on our part, we would say, we would say well, no, through the fall, the result of the fall is that we are in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to sin. And in a sense, they'll affirm that. I mean, you have to. It's explicit in Scripture. Um, but what I've heard from flowers is just because we're enslaved from sin doesn't mean we can't recognize our enslavement and, you know, seek to be freed or ask for freedom. But my response simply to that would be, well, that enslavement, biblically speaking, includes the mind, the way in which we think. So... Yeah, one of the things that they'll talk a lot about is that just because we are um, sinful doesn't mean that we can admit or acknowledge that we're sinful and we need help. And what they've really done is they've truncated repentance and faith down to a simple acknowledgement that you're a sinner or admitting that you're a sinner or agreeing with God that you're a sinner, which you know we as Calvinists would affirm is necessary in, in order to be saved. But we also believe that um, it's actually a change of nature that we, it's more than just acknowledging that we're sinners, we actually have to have the gifts of repentance and faith in order to overcome that deadness so that we will trust in Christ through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because if you go back and you trace the history of especially the Southern Baptist faith and message, back in 1925, the, the original edition, it was a lot stronger on the whole idea of being in bondage to sin, being in under condemnation. And it wasn't until the 1963 update when Herschel Hobbes brought in his strong anti-Calvinistic sentiments that they actually changed the language to be very, very weak. Um, almost, I would say, almost semi-Pelagian. I know that a traditionalist don't like us to use that term, um, but they changed the wording to being more that man is inclined towards sin. He, in, he inherits a sinful nature. He inherits an environment that's inclined towards sin. Um, whereas the original 1925 talks about people being guilty in Adam and under condemnation and in bondage to sin. And unfortunately, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message has not changed that 63 wording. Um, and so the traditional statement even takes it one step further from the Baptist Faith and Message and makes it even more semi-Pelagian. Actually, a few years ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I actually did a, wrote an article uh, where I compared the the different versions, the 20, 1925, 1963, and 2000 editions of the uh, Baptist Faith and Message, showing you know focusing on where it has changed, and it's very you you really do see a clear shift in the uh, theological emphases. Um, like in the 1925, I think it's really explicit that. 
regarding the, the sinfulness of man, that, that we are born into this world um, under condemnation, and then we become actual sinners, whereas the 1963 and 2000 essentially flip that. Uh, and you also see some changes in the terminology being used. Um, but everything you just said, I think, is a really good segue into our next question. And you kind of touched on it already, but I'd like you to elaborate on some more. And that is the the traditionalists uh, really like to uh, look back to past SBC presidents, E.Y. Mullins, who was president over the 1925 edition of the Baptist Faith and Message, and Herschel Hobbes, who was president over the 1963 edition of the BFM. And you, you've actually written a paper that basically demonstrates that that's not really a good thing for the traditionalists. So maybe you can uh, talk a little bit more on that historical point. Right. It's interesting. I did a study on Romans 9 and how Romans 9 has been understood or interpreted throughout church history. And pretty much until about 1868, Romans 9, the majority view has been that it is talking about individual salvation, individual reprobation of individuals, not nations. This, And so whether it's the early church fathers, where it's an Arminian, more foreseen faith, conditional election, whether it's more reformed, um, unconditional election, uh, the whole issue was individual salvation. And then I'm going to throw out a name here. In, 19, in 1868, a German theologian named Willibald Beschlag. Um, he wrote the Pauline Theodicy in Romans, and he was the first person I can find to articulate that all previous views were wrong and that basically Paul was arguing for election of nations, not individual election of salvation. So 1868, you start with some German liberal theologians, and then obviously Karl Barth in his Church Dogmatics in 1957 really is the one that comes on the scene and espouses this corporate view of election. And I can't prove this scientifically, but I have a strong suspicion based upon the writings of Herschel Hobbes that he was heavily influenced by Karl Barth's view of election. And he basically um, abandoned the Calvinism of Southern Seminary um, in the 20s and 30s. Um, E.Y. Mullins was kind of a weird bird. His theology was inconsistent, but if there's one person in SBC life that turned the trajectory from Calvinism to traditionalism slash Arminianism slash synergism, whatever you want to call it, it is Herschel Hobbes. He was the architect of the 63 Baptist Faith and Message. He wrote tons of curriculum. Um, he was the, the radio program, the Baptist Hour, for many years. And so the theology of the 60s, 70s, 80s, that whole theology was, for lack of a better word, Hobbesian, if that's a word, um, Herschel Hobbes. And his whole view, especially um, his, his New Man in Christ commentary on Ephesians, his commentary on the Baptist faith and message, he totally blows unconditional election out of the water and argues for this new corporate view of election, uh, basically that and you'll hear Leighton Flowers and others espouse this as well. Basically what their view is, is that Jesus Christ is the elect one. And this comes back from Karl Barth. And so God has predestined a plan. God has predestined a, a scheme. God has predestined the church. And the way you get in on the plan is you use your free will to 
trust Christ and get in Christ. And once you choose your, to get in Christ by using your free will, then you become one of the elect. So God does not individually, unconditionally elect any sinner before the foundation of the world. He simply elects a plan, and you get in on the plan by using your free will. And once you trust Christ, once you use your free will, then you become part of the elect. That's new theology that really came from Bart. That was not in the founders of the early Southern Baptists. That, that whole view has not really been in church history. And so traditionalists hang their hat on this corporate view of election, which has really only been around maybe 60, 70 years old. Would you say, Sean, it's more akin to a, a theater with a certain number of seats and they're not assigned to any particular individual. And once somebody decides to go into the theater and sit into one of the seats, they then become one of the elect. Is it kind of like that? Yeah. What what they'll say? They'll. I've heard. I've heard different analogies. Um, I've heard the airplane. I've heard the boat. Um, it's basically God has a ship, and the ship is predestined to go from New York to London. And so there's a destination, there's a predestined destination. Anybody that wants to get on the predestined ship with Christ as the captain, you're free to get on. So you use your free will, you get on the ship. Once you're on the ship, you're part of that predestined plan to get you to the destination. Now, an Arminian would say you can choose to jump off the ship and lose your salvation and get out of the plan. Um, But it's more this predestined plan. And you get in on it by using your free will. So God will not violate your free will, but they want to protect God's sovereignty. And so it's reduced to a plan more so than actual individual unconditional election. Yeah, and that's interesting because you really do, in the way they articulate election oftentimes, they really do articulate election more of as a plan when in scripture really clearly it's god the the object of god's election is not a plan but but a people as we see for example in ephesians 1 and so you know they almost have to rewrite the biblical language of of election to to fit their theology i find that to be uh, just absolutely interesting um but you know you were kind of talking about uh, neo orthodoxy here um in your paper you also uh, bring up uh, schleiermacher um, so speaking of that, do you see any other, do you see any, uh, negative theological tendencies today, um, with regard to, uh, traditional soteriology? And then after answering that, Sean, I have a question, um, I want to follow up about the politics that are at work inside of the SBC. So two questions. One, what dangerous things do you, do I see as far as unhealthy yeah, tendencies. Like, uh, I recently you shared that article uh, with me um, with, with regard to latent flowers and the view of general and special revelation. Yeah, I would say there's two big issues. I, I think that the traditionalists are getting a little bit too close to open theism in their strong denial of Calvinism. They're getting too cozy with open theism. Well, even so Drew and I talked with latent flowers. What was that? Maybe 18 months ago, Drew, maybe two years ago now. Something like um, that, maybe around two years. And he he told us, and I mean, I, I rebuked him um, as, as loving and as directly as I could because he said, if I'm going to choose between open theism 
and a doctrine that assaults, and this was one of his critiques on Reformed soteriology, a doctrine that assaults God's character, then I'll go with open theism because all it does is it assaults God's knowledge and not his character. And so there you already have one of the main proponents of the system admitting unashamedly that he would much rather adopt uh, open theism than anything that would resemble Calvinism. So, Well, here's the issue. If you take, whether it's Arminianism or any type of synergistic system, if you take it to its logical conclusion, it's going to lead to open theism and it's going to lead to universalism. Now, thankfully, at this point, most traditionalists are going to deny, they have to deny open theism because the Baptist faith and message denies it. Now, if, if they're going to be a traditionalist and not hold the Baptist faith and message, that's their, that's their business. But the first thing I see is a cozying up to open theism. The other thing I, th- I see is um, what Drew talked about is this whole idea of uh, the inclusiveness of Christ. What about those that have never heard? This whole idea that you know there are people in the deep dark jungles of Africa that are going to be saved without conscious faith in Christ because they're genuinely seeking and God's going to reward them with more faith and um, they're they're getting you know basically the question here's the here's the question to the question you'll ask a traditionalist okay you believe that God is obligated to allow every single person the opportunity to hear. We believe anybody's capable. Whosoever will, we believe anybody can be saved. Um, anybody can hear it. Anybody has the ability. And so you say, okay, let's, let's, let's take that one step further. Let me ask you a question. What about those who've never heard? Because for thousands of years, God and His sovereignty has prevented, through His providence, people from actually being able to hear and being able to respond. So how do you answer that question for those that have never heard? And so what they end up doing is, oh, wow, we've got a problem here because that denies what our major tenet is that anybody can hear, anybody can respond. So we've got to basically change a historic answer to the exclusive, you know, the exclusive nature of salvation in Christ alone to opening up to this whole idea that you know, maybe somebody in the deep, dark jungles of Africa can have faith in Christ without specific, you know, special revelation through the scriptures, you know, basically through general revelation or nature. And so I think two things I see, open theism and what about those who've never heard are becoming, I think those are going to be a natural trajectory if they're not careful, um, if they're consistent with their system. Yeah, and it's almost similar to what Rome has done. You know, Rome has kind of uh, articulated more and more clearly over the over the years that exact thing. Well, as long as you have this kind of general knowledge of God, uh, then then you're in. <laughs> you, you can make it in as long as you don't outright reject the idea of God, whatever that may be. Then then you can come on in. You're part of the group. And I'm not saying that's what the traditionalists are advocating, but I am. I am saying that they seem to be on that trajectory. It seems to be a, a such an adherence to man's ability and um, that they're willing to give up all of these things to protect that. And when we start trading off our doctrines, we say, well, you know, I got to give a little here because I want, I want to hold this, then you're really doing damage to the gospel message because as you're laying out pretty clearly, Sean, 
theology is intertwined. It's a thread. And once you start to tug on that thread, um, you'll see very quickly that things become unraveled. And so to keep your system nice and tight, you, you have to give concessions somewhere unless you're, you know, obviously reformed because <laughs> we're perfectly consistent. Um, but I think that's what you are seeing within uh, this movement. So, Sean, talk to us. What are they trying to preserve? What is it that they're are they? Is it just simply oh. man's ability and free will or? Well, uh, that, that, that's a, that goes back to your other question about the politics. And so let me kind of give you a couple of ideas of thoughts that I have on, you know, because we're going to be coming up to an election of a president. And obviously at this point, you've got, you know, J.D. Greer and you've got Ken Hemphill. Here's the problem. I think that all Southern Baptists can agree upon what the gospel is. I think we've got that down. The gospel is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the call to all people everywhere to repent and believe. What we disagree upon are the theological issues that undergird the gospel, the implications that flow from the gospel, the implications of how a person is saved. And so that's where we differ. And so here's the problem in Southern Baptist life. Methodology flows from theology. And so I think what the traditionalists are doing is they're elevating some types of methodology to a place that should not be given. And so let me give you some examples. They want to preserve the sinner's prayer, the altar call, uh, the whole public invitation type. Um, they want to go back to tent revival meetings, which in and of themselves are not you know, good or bad. I think they're, they're basically methods that were part of a past you know, era. But I, so, so that's one issue is methodology flows from theology, and I think they're concerned that our methodology, methodology is going to change. But I think the other big issue is, and this is, I think, the bottom line. I think it's theological, but I think it's also political. They're losing influence and power in the SBC that they once held. And I think they're legitimately concerned about a quote-unquote Calvinist takeover of the SBC where they won't have a place at the table anymore. And as a matter of fact, this past summer at the Southern Baptist Convention, the Connect 316 luncheon, Eric Hankins, who's the drafter of the traditional statement, he, he gave a speech on, you know, what do we do now five years later? And he basically flat out said, you know, I'm calling on loyal opposition to all non-Calvinists to fight Calvinism, to make this an issue, to oppose it at every, at every step. Um, and so here's what needs to happen. We're an open Southern Baptist convention, and so let the truth win. Lay both sides out. Let churches, let pastors, let seminary students evaluate them. Let's see what's the most cohesive, most coherent, most consistent doctrine win the day. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing that Calvinism or Reformed theology is winning the day because it's proved to be the most consistent, the most coherent. You put traditionalism out there and it's confusing, it's convoluted, it doesn't make sense. And so you've got young seminary students uh, coming to these conclusions through, through their own exegesis. Um, and I've heard others say, you know, we need to have parity. We need to have balance in our seminaries. Um, I think Flowers just had a, a podcast a few weeks ago about how uh, there needs to be more more balance. And I said, well, that's why we have six seminaries. If, if, if you think Southern's too Calvinistic, well, then go to Southwestern or go to New Orleans. Um, we do have balance. Um, the issue is the traditionalist movement doesn't have the books. They don't have the big names. They don't have the conferences. Their seminaries are shrinking in numbers. 
And so they are seeing the convention that was their parents' convention, or, you know, this is not your father's Oldsmobile. They're, they're seeing a bygone day of methodology, theology, and political power waning, and they're panicking because this new generation is embracing Calvinism at such a rapid speed. And I know that's a, a pretty long answer, but that's kind of no, some of my thoughts. That's perfect. I think, I think that's good. And I, I kind of want to provide uh, two comments. Um, one really quick. Um, you mentioned uh, Southern Seminary. Um, the abstract of principles is what Southern Seminary uses for its faculty. You know, the faculty have to adhere to that. And of course, the abstract of principles is Calvinistic and it's uh, theological articulation. And not only does the abstract of principles predate the traditional statement by a long shot, but it also predates the Baptist faith and message. So from the, from the very inception of Southern Semin Seminary, the abstract of principles has been there. And so essentially what the traditionalists are saying is, well, you need to get rid of your, your original uh, statement of faith that has been there from its inception to allow room for our traditional soteriology, which to me is just well, lunacy. I mean, you can't you can't ask Southern Seminary to to do that. Um, second, to kind of respond, uh, give my own answer to uh, Dale's question. Um, I really do think that traditional soteriology, what it is, what it demonstrates, is a a unbalanced focus on anthropology. That that anthropology man really is central in their thinking and in their. Uh, theological articulation, and you really only need to read through the traditional statement once to to see this. That what is their main concern and focus in the traditional statement? It's it's the doctrine of of man. Um, and uh, Tom Askell, you know, makes this point really in his uh, ebook that he wrote called Traditional Theology in the SBC. Um, we'll probably link to that in our show notes page. And my reading of tra traditionalists, uh, such as Leighton Flowers in his uh, Potter's Promise, um, you also have Jerry Wells. Something I see over and over and over and over again is the the determining factor of God's attribute of love. That really is, I think, what guides their interpretation and their theological articulation is they have this unbalanced um view of God's attributes where they essentially they've taken God's attribute of love they've extrapolated it from um, his other attributes and really the the full testimony of scripture and they they've come up with this idea of a kind of omnibenevolence of God and so God must love everyone in the same way and because of those conclusions that they've come to that then becomes, we see this trickle-down effect, that then becomes a controlling factor for the way in which they view other related uh, theological issues. Right, and and that's one of the things that I, Drew, and you and I have talked about um, in the past is that I think one of, maybe the most devastating angle to approach these kind of conversations is in terms of theology proper. Because when we start talking about who God is, God is, he is his attributes and he, he is those attributes perfectly and simply. And he doesn't react or change because he's passionless, he's impassable, uh, because he's a simple being. Um, and since that's true, he's perfect in all that he is and he's unchangeable. So it's the creature 
that needs to change in their relationship to the Creator. The Creator can't be the one who has to manipulate himself around the creature's decisions because at that point, God stops being God based on the biblical testimony of who God is. And so that's why um, I think it's a very, you know, I'm hesitant, Sean, to say the word dangerous, um, but I think to be kind, it's a very troublesome rise and maybe it's not becoming popular in terms of the number of adherents, but at least the proponents are becoming much more vocal. And so maybe you can talk just for a few minutes. Why, if you were talking to a young minister straight out of seminary, joining the SBC, what would you tell him is the significance of this conversation at this point in history? Well, before I answer that question, can I go back and just affirm what you said about the simplicity of God, um, God without passions, the immutability of God? Um, I have yet to see any meaningful description by traditional theologians to deal with the simplicity of God, the immutability of God, the impassibility of God. Um, and those are just basic theistic, you know, basic theology. And so Again, if you go back and read the traditional statement, very few references to the glory of God. It's very anthropologically centric. And so I want to affirm you guys in your understanding of that, that it does have a high view of anthropology and that, um, you know, if, if the traditionalists really want to come to the table, they need to start addressing some of the issues just in theology proper that, that are in our confessions um, about the immutability, the impassibility, the simplicity of God. And so um, I, I thank you guys for bringing that up. The question you asked was, what would I, t- what would I tell a young uh, Southern Baptist pastor that wants to join this, this, uh, this fun party? Is that the question you had? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> What I would say is, number one, pastoring your local church is way more important than the inner workings of the denomination. Amen, brother. Um, Amen. We are called to exposit God's word and to shepherd the local flock. And to what extent you can voluntarily align yourself with the different SBC entities, I think people forget that we're all autonomous churches. Um, we voluntarily give to the cooperative program. We voluntarily participate with our local associations, our local state conventions. Um, that's not mandated down to us from Nashville. Um, that's that's totally you know the choice of a pastor. And so um, I think we should get involved. But I would say that a young pastor be a theologian as well as a pastor um, and understand the importance of systematic expository preaching to lead your flock uh, to understand these truths. Um, I, I think the, the thing that's really troublesome about the traditionalist movement is just the combative rhetoric that's been very, very recent. I mean, I'm talking like in the last week or two. Um, it seems like the rhetoric is just um, ramped up, uh, the divisiveness, the, the agendas. And so I think that's a little off-putting to the younger generation. Uh, most of these guys just want to go to a church, love the people, preach the word, focus on you know, being obedient, and, and they could care less about what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I, I think sometimes we make the convention bigger than it needs to be and realize that your autonomous local church is a whole lot more important than a denomination. 
Amen. I can't tell you how much that answer pleased me, brother, um, because I do think that there's a tendency to um, get get distracted, and um, that's solid advice for for young ministers coming out of seminary, going into pastoring a local church. You're commissioned and gifted by God to feed the flock of Christ, and you are to do that with all of your abilities and giftings that God has given you, and so stay the course. So, Sean, thank you for that wonderful reminder that shows your pastor's heart, and um, I appreciate that, brother. And uh, so I think this is this has been a good time together. I want to, and I know Drew will uh, want to as well, if you'd be open in the future, Sean, come back on. We can uh, discuss, we can maybe cherry pick one of these things and dig a little deeper into it, but at well, least... I, I think it would be I think it would be good maybe sometime after the election to have uh, Sean back on and kind of discuss what's going on in the SBC after that, see, see what's happening. Can I just, can I just say one, Oh, can I just say one thing to your listeners before we, we quit? Um, I think it's very, very important to, to accurately represent traditionalism. I think one of the things I've seen out there is they've been falsely labeled as Arminian or semi-Pelagian or this or that. And we just kind of lumped them in the Arminian camp. And, and I've really taken time over the past two and a half years to really understand what they believe. And so I think I've got the respect from their leaders because I've done that. And so I think it's very, very important to accurately portray and represent what they actually believe. Um, and so um, I would just commend anybody that studies another view to make sure you accurately represent them. And I know you guys are doing that, but I just... I would hate to, to have people just kind of throw flames at traditionalists without actually understanding what they believe. Amen. So you're brother. saying they're yeah. open theist Arminians? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're open theist Arminian um, inclusivists, pluralists. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> strike that from the record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much again, Sean, for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it. Like we, we talked about throughout the show, we will link uh, to Sean's um, podcast. We Also, Drew, if you can find the articles that we talked about that Sean's written, uh, we'll go ahead and link to those also. Um, and then Tom Askell's book, we'll, we'll link to that. So all that will be in the show notes page for episode five. Are we on five Episode already, five, we are. Man, you made it, brother, to five. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Sean, once again, brother, thanks for coming on. And um, if there's anything you want to say in closing, if there's a website you have or any other place that you want us to know about, Um, uh, go ahead and Yeah, I mean, I've got a website at seancole.net. You can find pretty much most of my contact information and understanding Christianity there. I have a Facebook page as well. Um, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Uh, you guys are fine Christian men um, doing a great job with your blog, your podcast. Um, I, I pray that God blesses your efforts and that you guys keep up the, the good work and may God be glorified in everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you, brother. All right, guys. Thanks. Until next time, we will see you. And uh, Drew, I think we are out, brother. You're out. Yeah.